Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. I am really excited about my guest this week. She is not someone you've probably heard on any other podcast. I think this may be the first podcast she's ever done. She is Dee Bridge. She's a licensed professional counselor that I interviewed for the New York Times back in October of this year. This was kind of an odd assignment. I was approached by some editors in the opinion section of the Times to do a Q&A with a conservative therapist as part of a package they were doing on mental health in America. They tracked down D and we had the conversation. And to my surprise, it garnered a great deal of attention, both positive and negative. From what I could tell, my audience uh, thought it was terrific. The response was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, In the October Zoom hangout for the podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about the interview, even though it had nothing to do with the unspeakable. So I thought it would be fun to actually bring her in here. Just for some background, Dee has been a practicing counselor since 2014, She's had several other careers before that. She did her training through a program at a private Christian college. And in fact, much of her client base comes to her through the criminal justice system. She works with sex offenders in particular, and that's a whole other subject that we don't get into here, but that I've covered previously on the podcast. Uh, She practices out of Grand Junction, Colorado. Her designation as a conservative therapist came about because she is listed uh, in a directory called conservativetherapist.com, which is how the Times found her. Uh, And after the interview was published, most of the feedback I got personally had to do with the question of what exactly about Dee's approach is conservative. She does mention her Christian faith, but she also emphasizes that she believes in keeping her personal values out of the therapy room. Some readers who wrote into the Times, including some therapists, actually disagreed with that approach, while others thought it should be a matter of course. In any case, these were all really valuable discussions that led to further discussion, uh, including this one. So here it is, my conversation with Dee Bridge. Dee Bridge, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you, Megan. As I just explained to my listeners, you are here to continue a conversation we had earlier this fall. That conversation came about because the New York Times opinion section, as part of a package on mental health, wanted to feature a conversation with a quote-unquote conservative therapist. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) in the process, they found their way to you, and they asked me to be a part of it. Uh, They couldn't run the whole conversation, of course, but they ran a portion of it. And the response was extraordinary. I really exceeded my expectations for sure. So I want to talk about the response. But before we do that, can you say a little bit about what went through your mind when the Times contacted you about this? (laughs) This must be a scam. That was my first thought. (laughs) Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I get some weird emails from people presenting as patients. Um, I've had one in particular presenting as a potential client and trying to get me snagged into a financial scam. Um, so that's happened. I've had some really interesting people with some interesting mental health concerns contact me and say, hey, I'd like you to be my therapist. And you know, after a screening process, 
I decide that that I, I'm I'm not the appropriate therapist for them, um, just based on the, their level of need. You know, so I have a lot of these red flags that pop up when I'm contacted by somebody in a foreign country, especially. <laughs> um, but after you know visiting with you guys, then my next thought was, huh, this is interesting. And then you know, trying to figure out is this going to bring some unwanted attention. Is it going to, you know, provide some education? Um, I don't know. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> That's hilarious that you thought that the New York Times was a scam. <laughs> well, the editors, is it because part, they were in London, the, the particular editors we were working with? Was that part of it or just? Yeah. <laughs> you thought you know, somebody was impersonating the New York Times? Basically. Yeah. And then my other thought was, why in the world would the New York Times contact me? I live out, you know, I mean, compared to bigger cities in the United States, I kind of live in a really, you know, like middle of nowhere sort of scenario. Why would they want to talk to me? You know, there's a lot of therapists in the world. And I still kind of wonder, you know, and we, we talked about that before about how they found me. But it's just interesting to me that people are interested in my thoughts. You know, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, they they should be. Um, they were, so yes, they found you through this website, conservativetherapists.com. That sounds like a scam to me. Really. <laughs> um, and that is like a database of therapists nationwide who would have an approach that I guess has a more, I don't know, like politically to the right, uh, kind of sensibility? I don't know. Uh, well, yeah. And maybe, you know, I mean, some of the people that contacted me are, you know, people who have really strong Christian values. And, right. you know, they thought maybe that that would be an avenue towards finding someone that would support them in that, or at least not denigrate them in that. <laughs> yeah. So that was okay. So, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you answered. We got past that hurdle of, of you thinking it was a Nigerian banking scam or something like that. Uh, and and you and I talked and yeah, we, we talked for about an hour. And I think sometimes people forget like a, a, a written transcript of an hour long conversation is very, very, very long. So anything that they were going to print as a sort of standalone piece was going to be a really short excerpt. The interview had an extraordinary response. Um, as far as I saw, people really, really liked it. What kind of response did did you get? And were you reading the comments on the New York Times on the on the article itself, the reader comments? The day the article came out, I looked at about 15 of, you know, what turned out to be maybe like 700. And then I was told like by day two or three, there's about 1500 comments, you know, and I saw a few that were interested in what I had to say. I saw, saw some that absolutely dismissed what I had to say. And, and I didn't look further. The only reason I knew there were 1500 is because somebody in my office had checked it and told me, you know, how many comments there were. What was really intriguing, I guess, is the number of people that took the time to find me, find my phone number or my email address or my business address and send me a note to say how much they appreciated one person used the word, you know, this kind of fresh approach. Um, somebody said, you know, hey, I took some nuggets away from what you said and have applied them in my own life. Thank you for that. You know, so I had a hand, everything from a handwritten note to a phone call. I've even had a, a Zoom meeting with someone as a follow up to that because they were interested to to talk more, you know, somebody of a different age category than myself, um, completely different geographical basis, you know, I mean, so there's just been an interesting mix of people, mostly men, 
um, as far as the, the demographic that's reached out. I had a couple of women. Um, I actually now do have a client who was interested in meeting with somebody from a conservative perspective to help them understand some dysfunctional relationships in their life who were also conservative and they identify as liberal. And so trying to figure out like, how can I understand this person better by talking to somebody who might, you know, identify with their platform. So that's, that's been kind of cool too, to see that people are really trying to get outside of themselves and see a bigger picture. Wow. Wait, let me understand this a little better. So this person is a liberal, identifies as liberal, but wants to look at her life or a certain situation through a conservative lens? What does that mean? Like, obviously you can't disclose the details, but like, I want to hear more about this. <laughs> well, I think that the bigger issue was, you know, um, this individual felt like they were kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place. Many of their family members identified as Democrat, the, you know, someone else important in their life identified as conservative as did that person's family. And so they're feeling like they're on an island, you know, or the, the stuffing in an Oreo cookie, right? They're, they're between both sides here and trying to figure out where do I fit? You know, am I the mediator? Am I sacrificing values? Am I abandoning, you know, the values I was raised with if I side with this person? You know, how, how can I try to stay logical and in the middle here when I feel like I'm just being pushed and pulled and I can't really speak my own mind, you know, to some, to some extent. So just, I think some additional clarification around what made this so hard for me, you know, and I think that is really insightful on that person's part. Yeah. And also really impressive that they're actually willing to wrestle with their discomfort. Because I think most people just go around seeking validation in any given interaction, right? Yeah. (laughs) Especially from a therapist. Well, yeah, because we, we, you know, we want people that, that tell us that we're right, you know, that we're justified. It's a lot harder to sit in front of somebody and hear them say things like, you know, how's that working out for you? Um, have you looked in the mirror lately? <laughs> that's that's you know? the Dr. <laughs> Phil line, right? How's that <laughs> yes. working for you? <laughs> yeah. So to, to be faced with having to examine, examine your own motives and your own, your own contribution to the dysfunction, whatever that is, you know, because nobody operates in a vacuum where there's always some people have a bigger level of accountability that they need to take when relationships, relationships fall apart than the other. But, you know, it's very rare that it's all one person's fault. Right. So one of the uh, moments in our interview that people seem to really remember and talk about a lot. So I asked you, do you think that Donald Trump made everyone go crazy? (laughs) And you said, what do you mean by made everybody go crazy? And I said, in my world, I know a lot of people who were so distressed about the election of Trump that they had to go on anxiety medication. They couldn't sleep. It dominated their lives, their goals, their thoughts, their relationships, their conversations for four years and even to this day. You said, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Why would you let one person in the world control your life? Are you that weak? <laughs> yeah, I bet that didn't really land very well with some people, you know, that I'm, I can see why some people might say, Oh, my gosh, she's a terrible therapist, we need to, you know, vote her off the planet. Somebody said you were a meanie. Yeah. The end. I believe that was the technical term. You're a meanie. <laughs> so well, you know, and they have their opinions, right. But I think, you know, I still stand behind the thought that if somebody is that wrapped up in politics, how does that fit with their own sense of self-worth? How does it fit with their own ability to validate 
themselves as an individual? You know, is that the only only thing you have in your life? You know, maybe you need some other things to bring balance to that thought process. Um, and I don't care whether it's Donald Trump or whether it's anybody in your life. You know, we have the choice to distance ourselves from people that create that much consternation in our lives. But a lot of times we don't take it or we don't feel like we have the choice. We forget we have the choice. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, just to stay on this moment for a second. So I said, well, they would say, you know, Donald Trump is, he was not just anybody, you know, he was, he was the president of our country. And you said there were people who thought Barack Obama was the antichrist too. And they lived through that. People don't agree with Joe Biden now either. If you really give that much control to someone, there are a lot more deficits in your life than you recognize. So I think that with the Trump example, the people I know who were so upset, if you suggested to them that they needed to, to get over themselves, they would say, well, it's not about me. It's about all the people that he's hurting. So they have this, you know, they think about the child separation, you know, the, the borders, for instance, which is, I, I'm, I suspect you would agree, is, is a horrific situation, very upsetting. So how much of this is like, it's, it's hard to say because you don't want to tell people not to have empathy. And right. there's a version of your advice where somebody would say, well, it's not, you know, you're, what you're advising is something that requires a certain self-absorption or like shutting out the world and not caring about other people. But at the same time, empathy can get the best of you, you know? Right, right. Well, and we can have empathy for other people, but we also, we can't allow it to become some sort of enabling behavior for a bigger picture. I mean, like it or not, bad things happen to good people and there are natural consequences, you know? And sometimes when you look at how these things play out, here's an example. In our county, um, there was a measure that was just voted on, and actually, I think it extended to the state, not just the county, to feed all kids school lunches um, free, whereas before, it was just the low-income kids that got free lunches. And I'm not going to sit here and say how I voted on this. However, if you continue to give people free things, does that absolve them of the responsibility to provide for their own? And so I think when we're talking about, you know, how we can give empathy, but there's a point at which we give so much that we're not looking at the bigger picture, we're not protecting ourselves. And in the long run, that may be detrimental, you know, depending on the circumstances. I think it's easy to say, oh, you know, if she's a meanie or whatever, but these are really complex issues, you know. And so you can have an emotional response, but when you sit down and try to figure out, well, what is the right answer? I mean, this is not an easy thing to sort out. So when people come into you, what kinds of problems do they tend to have? Um, lots of anxiety, lots of criminal-minded thinking, because I work with some people who are involved in the criminal justice system. I work with some people who have developmental delays, and that's a whole other animal too, because they're just trying to learn how to to be successful, you know, in the world. You think about the day-to-day -day problems that neurotypical people have and these people's, comp you know, problems are compounded. So they've got, you know, everything is elevated for them. So they're just trying to figure out how to manage basic relationships, you know, and, and you see some people, I don't see a lot of people with grief and loss specifically, but everybody has those themes in their lives, you know, so we end up seeing 
kind of a smattering of a lot of things. I have worked with severely mentally ill in the past, um, schizophrenic um, personality disorders, which I, I have a little bit of that going on, you know, and some bipolar, but anxiety and depression, honestly, I think top the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that was happening with people's responses was that they were, they were reacting to you as if you were like the kind of therapist that the average New York times reader knows about or has gone to, right? So they're imagining you with a client base of educated upper middle class people paying out of their pockets for therapy. When in fact, you we can't talk in great detail about the the nature of your your client base, but you work with people involved in criminal justice system with with I believe with sex offenders sometimes. So you are like are you a sort of a court appointed therapist like how does that exactly work? Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily court appointed, but but I work closely with the legal system. You know, um, people, pe- some people are mandated, not necessarily mandated to see me, but they're mandated to see somebody. And so we do work around a lot of these issues. I have a lot of, you know, not well educated, blue collar, highly dysfunctional upbringing clients. You know, I have a lot of people who have done significant amounts of time in prison. And I have worked community corrections and there is a certain language that those folks speak. And, and if you can't communicate in that way, you're not going to be very effective with them. So can you give an example of that? Um, let me see. Like a certain way that they speak. Yeah. What well, it's that? just, it's just a no bullshit approach. <laughs> I mean, honestly, anybody that's been in prison, they can smell it coming a mile away. And, and if you are not honest and truthful, and if you don't garner some, you know, bi-directional respect, you might as well hang it up. If you, you know, fill them full of something and, and you fail them, they've been failed a lot in their lives. They've also failed a lot in their lives, right? And, and if you're going to be just another one of those talking heads that can't be a straight shooter, it's going to kill your therapeutic relationship. Mm. So how do you talk about trauma with them? Because trauma is a word that is thrown around a lot now in the popular discourse. I know we touched on it in our conversation before. Like, do they, do you sit there and like try to help them like process trauma in a way that would be like the kind of stuff that we read about online or that people talk about on Twitter and you know, yeah. stuff that we kind of see out <laughs> in, know. in the pop is culture. It, is there anything that is worth listening to on Twitter? I can't tell you because I don't have a Twitter account. <laughs> so, okay. This is I why you're very mentally as, healthy. Yes. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I mean, I, I kind of know what my limitations are around that for sure. So I don't do social media, but, you know, I'm not a trauma therapist per se, but I have done enough work and studying about, you know, and, and, you know, we all have our own, our own baggage that we bring to the table too, right? We don't get out of this alive without some kind of trauma, but, you know, we recognize that trauma plays a role. Um, but I am not necessarily, I don't take a client, you know, with massive amounts of trauma with the sole purpose of trying to help them work through their trauma. You know, sometimes these people come to us with that. And if it becomes an impediment to, the type of therapy that I need to be doing based on their court involvement, then they might actually seek an outside person to help them work on that while I work on the other things. But it, you know, and the, the big message, I guess, like the umbrella message is you are more than what you've experienced. You know, you, it's a, you experience this thing and yes, it was terrible, but stop identifying and stop labeling yourself as this victim who, you know, because we all are victims of something. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that came up when we had the uh the the, the podcast hangout. So this this was a, we did this for the New York Times and it had nothing to do with the podcast, but part of the reason I I'm having you on now is we ended up talking a lot about it in the in the Zoom meetup for the for this podcast. We're supposed to be talking about actual episodes of the podcast, but everybody wanted to talk about you <laughs> and and the piece. And you know, I think they they found it really refreshing. You know, I think some people were frustrated by by some of the things. I mean, there are limitations to that kind of write up. We couldn't get into great depth about a lot of things. But you know, getting back to this like what is a conservative approach versus what is a liberal approach? I think a lot of people were sort of almost sad that kind of basic, just sort of rational thinking strategies and common sense have been packaged as conservative rather than liberal or like, wh wh why isn't it just sort of, why is this politicized at all? I guess. Right. Right. Well, and I guess the only thing I can really say about, maybe where I can start anyway, is the people that contacted me even before you guys, there were the times contacted me, you know, would call and say, I don't feel like I can connect, I can connect with my therapist. Um, you know, I have these very, whether it's faith-based Christian or conservative ideals, and they're not hearing me, you know, and, and I don't know what those exchanges looked like, you know, was that just perception or was it reality? but they didn't feel like they were connecting with this person. And in some ways it felt like the, the cl potential client or the client felt like they had to be guarded around what they were saying. And, and I don't know what led them to feel that way. Um, you know, some actually did come out and say that they were pretty much chastised for thinking the way that they think, which we all know is unethical. It's unhealthy. If that's the kind of therapist that you are, you probably need to find a new job because that goes against the whole meet them where they are concept, you know, or at least be aware enough to say, I don't know that this is going to be a good relationship. Can I refer you to somebody else? Um, you know, that's the ethical thing to do. So I don't know. And maybe if you label yourself, you know, as conservative, does that give people more of a, a sense of comfort around, okay, well, I can, I can freely speak about these things, you know, that I want to speak about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the homepage of the conservative therapist site has this quote, it says half of Americans have conservative values, yet approximately 90% of therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists are guided by a liberal or even socialist value system. I don't know how socialists considering what they charge, but okay. Uh, creating a barrier for conservatives who would prefer talking with a professional who supports their values. 90%, I don't know where this data comes from, but you know, when you think about the the type of person who is interested in becoming a therapist or a psychologist, I guess it makes sense that they might kind of skew to the to the left. I don't know. I've seen that I've seen that 90% number before in in fact, I think his name is Jonathan Haidt. I think, you know, somebody that you're aware of too. Yes, he's been on he's the show. He's done some interesting uh, research into this. And, and the, how I got to the conservative therapist website was because I started to wonder how many people are there in the therapy world that profess to have conservative values. And that kind of led me to that conservative therapist website. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting that, that we have to promote ourselves, you know, as conservative so that people know that there's a 
the the viewpoint out there that maybe doesn't feel like mainstream. I think there's also just this bias, you know. I mean, I know when I was seeking a specific provider for a specific thing, I had a thought because they work in alternative medicine. My thought was, I wonder what their political affiliation is because this person's going to be sticking needles in me, you know, and I want to know, <laughs> I want to know how healthy they are. And I, that probably sounds horrible, you know, healthy politically, are they a balanced person? You know, that type of thing, right? Is there, because I didn't know anything about acupuncture at that point. And so I wanted to make sure that I was putting myself in a position to where I could just feel comfortable now. And so what's wrong with my threat response system when that's what I have to think about before I put myself in those positions? <laughs> oh my gosh. So wait, you were worried that just, you know, by virtue of being on the left, that the acupuncturist would be sort of like psychologically unstable and therefore not necessarily the person you want sticking needles in you? Or were you worried that, that the person would think that you were on the other side? What, what Was it a contentious thing or was you just like you, you were worried about the person's own mental health? Yeah, no, and I don't, I don't want to go that far and say I was worried about their mental health, but not knowing anything about acupuncture. And this was kind of a like an offhanded comment that I made, you know, to somebody like, oh, my gosh, she's going to be sticking needles in me. You know, is, is this is does this person think like I do? Is there the potential for, you know, are they going to treat me fairly if they find out that I'm a conservative? You know, and I think those fears that conservatives have, and maybe liberals have them too, right? Depending on environments that they're in. It just tells you how polarized everything has gotten. And, and this was like 15 years ago, you know, that I was having these thoughts, right? But it's like, gosh, I really want to know if I feel like I can trust this person. And part of trusting them is understanding their value system. So whether it's political or not, right? It's just understanding their value system. And, and as it turned out, this person has a very similar value system to mine. And she and I have actually talked about, you know, my, my just my initial thoughts, you know, and kind of laughed about it actually afterwards to say, oh, my gosh, what was, you know, what was wrong with me that I had to go down that thought, that line of thought because I was worried. But, you know, there's a lot of bias around what alternative medicine is, maybe not as much now as there was 10, 20 years ago. Right. But yeah. um, like, is this going to be some woo woo sort of voodoo treatment? You know, I'm way more educated around the alternative medicines now than I was. So a lot of a lot of these questions that we ask just comes from ignorance, you know, and I'm not, I'm not immune to it either. Do you feel like most conservatives feel like they are not persecuted, that's a strong word. Maybe some of them do feel that way, but just feel that they are looked down upon more than people on the left. Because, you know, a lot of people in the New York Times comment section, you know, are sort of rolling their eyes. Oh, here's another person on the right who thinks that everyone's against them, that thinks that they're marginalized, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, it goes, it goes both ways. So yeah, how do you think people feel about that? I think it depends on... It depends on you as the individual, you know, I mean, are you, do you have a pretty strong sense of self? Are you okay with what you believe? I mean, is there, are you putting yourself into a scenario where, you know, you might legitimately be getting those sideways glances? Um, I feel like a lot of conservatives, I mean, I was raised in the Midwest, but a lot of conservatives come from some very, you know, grassroots, blue collar, agricultural, uh, whatever you want to call it, right? upbringings, you know, which 
to some of the educated elites looks like some sort of, you know, bumbling Barney Fife type of a person. Um, so, so I do think that that there are those biases also for, for somebody who has maybe lived in academia their whole lives, you know, and never actually been boots on the ground. You know, they might look at those of us that like to work the earth, like to work with our hands, enjoy hunting, enjoy, you know, taking care of the planet because it provides us with food and resources. You know, I mean, honestly, hunters and agricultural people are some of the biggest environmentalists assuming they're responsible ones, right? Because they appreciate what the land gives. And, you know, and sometimes those, those mentalities, for instance, one of my young clients educated me recently about something that apparently dates back four or five years ago, where in pop culture or young 20 somethings, you know, culture, if, if you're, if you're labeled as being basic, that apparently is a derogatory term (laughs) You know, yes, and like, yes. like I know, had never heard of this before. How did I get to be this old and not know this? Oh, you know? I didn't hear about it until like six years ago. And I was, I was, uh, well, basic bitch, I believe. Is the yes. Original yeah. Yeah. If you want to, yeah, the whole, the whole terminology, like, you know, you're, you're unsophisticated, you're not hip, you're not modern, you're frumpy, you're whatever, you know, oh. like, give me a break. You know, well, if you looked at me right now, you would probably think that, you know, maybe I'm basic because I'm wearing a flannel shirt and blue jeans and cowboy boots. Oh, okay. This is fascinating (laughs) because that's not my definition of basic. I am also wearing a flannel shirt right now, but um, (laughs) uh, no, my understanding of the basic trope is that it's somebody, it's usually like a young person or, you know, sort of like a millennial and it was all, it started off with a woman. Like, so this was a kind of prototypical young woman. And it's the kind of person who thinks that they're really interesting, but they just kind of like their tastes are just very ordinary. Like hmm. the pumpkin spice latte was sort of the kind of official meme of the basic trope. So it was like she, the kind of girl who would say, Oh, I love the fall because I love to go to Starbucks and get a pumpkin spice latte. And she would, you know, sort of wear kind of like her, her wardrobe would just be the most obvious kind of fashionable things. And she would like the most boring pop music and just really had no imagination about life, but fancied herself as somebody with like cool and hip tastes. So, but maybe this, maybe the basic definition varies from region to region. That was like the New York City version of basic. Yeah. And honestly, you know, what you just described just sounds like somebody who's kind of shallow and looking for meaning in their <laughs> lives. You know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that is a I, basic uh, trait, though, right? I guess. So, yeah, I don't I don't know what to make of this, you know, because the, the person that introduced me to this also said, you know, her take on it being a 20 something was that being normal is outdated and actually chastised, you know, so if you've got young people that are trying to figure out you know, what do I want to be like, you know, in life? And then I'm going to look at all of this stuff out here that's portrayed on TV and in the media. And that's what I'm going to pattern my life over. Well, that's, that's my new normal. Cause that's what I see. Right. You know, and I think a lot of what's out there is anything but normal, but I'm also quite a bit older. <laughs> so. I think you're a normie. I think what you're describing is, is a normie. Like, so that would be in my world. That would be like somebody who's not super online, who doesn't follow the latest social media dramas, uh, that kind of thing. So, mm, but okay, maybe, yes, just... <laughs> these are regional, these are regional distinctions, little yeah. regional variations. So, well, like, let's talk about how people are 
thinking about their lives because I'm always interested in sort of the way people try to construct their personalities and you know especially just with the way the way social media and memes and just very short bursts of images and kind of thought bubbles they have come to basically be our culture now like instead of reading a novel or sitting through a 2 hour movie in the theater we're just kind of scrolling so do you see like sort of kind of i don't know any other way to put it sort of like the just kind of meltdown of of personality as a result of this? Yeah, I remember when I worked in the school district, and this would have been, gosh, at least 20 years ago, um, there was all the rage to, you know, scare kids straight off of drugs and alcohol, right? I mean, that'd been going on for a while, but it was still going on when I worked in the middle schools. And they decided they had to bring in this three screen um, flashbang presentation, you know, that showed car accidents and people driving drunk and all this craziness, you know, to middle schoolers, mind you. And because they didn't have the attention span necessary to absorb messages any other way. And, you know, again, this has been like 20 years ago and this really stuck with me as seriously, this is, you know, because our kids can't absorb a message, then we're going to feed into that craziness, you know, like, what did they get out of that? I have no idea. I don't know that it was any more or less effective, or maybe it was just neutral, you know, compared to the other methods of delivery. But somewhere along the line, I think the schools decided, well, trying to scare them straight didn't really work. You know, we got to come up with a new approach. And so I, I think society has rewired the brains of people because of the fact that we don't sit down and do the basic things anymore. You know, we don't do memorization and times tables. And, and in some cases, kids have very little practice with handwriting and some places don't even do cursive anymore. And some of these more tactile things that involve all your senses, you know, I still sit down and write note cards periodically. I handwrite Christmas cards um, because there is something about connecting yourself with another person, you know, from your brain, through your hand, through your paper, and sharing that with someone else. Way more deeply personal than just clacking something out on a keyboard. So do you have young people come into you and you think that a lot of what they're dealing with is a result of this? And like, how do you even begin to to broach this with them? Well, I don't work with a ton of young people. I don't work with anybody under the age of 18 um, because I've already raised my kids. And I'm quite frankly, I'm raising some I feel like I'm raising some, you know, grown ass men now who didn't get raised when they should have. So taking on, you know, juveniles too is just more than I have time for. <laughs> but okay. but I do have some, you know, some young people with some still developing brains. You know, we know that the brains are not really fully developed until in the neighborhood of 25 years old. So we have people I have people coming in who have made some, you know, typical teenage choices, but the difference is I feel like they're way beyond chronologically, they're beyond what they should have been in making those choices, you know, and so we're, we're trying to undo some things, you know, like, I hear these younger people say, well, I just can't focus. And I don't have any memory of that, you know. So I, when they say I don't have any memory of my childhood, and you're only 22, what were you doing in your life that you were so disconnected from some really meaningful and grounding things? How can you not remember your life when you're only 22, you know? Um, so it is that a result of, of media and the fast pace of life and the fact that we don't 
we're not intentional in how we act. We're a very reactive society. I mean, it's got to be a part of the puzzle, I think. Well, I would imagine in the case of some of your clients, it would be the result of blocking out trauma. So maybe, but not always. I think we sometimes we hide behind that, you know, like, I mean, and, and that's, I, that's differently identified by different people. I have some people that can come in and give you, you know, 15 mental health diagnoses that they, they wear like a badge of honor. We have a really hard time having them reframe how they, how they interact with their trauma history, you know? And so instead of, you know, lugging all that baggage around with you for the rest of your life, how can you get outside of that and realize it's a thing that happened to me, but it does not define who I am. Yeah. And that should not be a controversial statement, but I think a lot of people did take offense at that. So one of the things I was seeing on Twitter responding to this, uh, responding to our article was that by not taking structural injustice into account, you weren't really doing the entire job of the therapist. There were a lot of people out there that believed that to, in order to be a good therapist, you had to understand uh, structural inequality. If somebody goes in and they happen to be a woman, for instance, that to, to evaluate, to assess her challenges without any kind of um, recognition of the problems of women historically, like just, or, you know, like patriarchy. Okay. To not take those things into account you're not doing your full job. That's what a lot, some people were saying. So what would you say to that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about that right now, because as a woman who was in the military in the early eighties, so at a time when there was like less than 1% of women were actively in on active duty, I had my fair share of, I don't even know what to call it because I'm, I'm not a victim. Right. And I refuse to put myself in that, but I had comments made to me like, wow, you're okay for a girl. Um, you know, I, there was, there was what would be defined today as sexual harassment. And you know what, even at that time in my life, I had enough intestinal fortitude to look at somebody and say, you know what, kiss my ass. (laughs) Um, because here I am, I'm wearing the uniform just like you are. And, and I didn't take them seriously because I knew who I was. And it didn't matter that they said those things because I didn't value, I didn't value their opinion enough to, to make it matter to me, you know? Okay. So this is, I have written about this in my book. I was not in the military, but I think I, there's probably passages in my last book where I say something almost identical. It just has to do with, I'm in, I'm in the office and, you know, basically I don't, I have enough of a sense of myself that I don't really care how somebody else behaves. Like that's, you know, words alone are not going to strike me down. Right. The criticism I got for that was, well, that's you. That's great for you. You that maybe that's part of your temperament. Naturally, probably you had a lot of privileges growing up that allowed you to be that way. Oh, give me um, a break. Okay. Okay. Wait. Okay. But then they'll, but then, so, but then there's this question that that might be okay for you, but why do you not take into account the experiences and emotional structures of the people around you. Like, and and then this raises a question, like, do we organize society around the weakest members or the most vulnerable members? Or do we sort of, or do we, you know, hold everyone to a standard, a higher standard and hope that those who haven't met it yet can, can get there? 
I feel like there's, a, for the people, the naysayers around there, there's a lot of, there's a bunch of huge assumptions being made that just because that this is my attitude and this was me, that I am incapable of recognizing the effects uh, on other people, right? And, and I was reminded a long time ago by somebody um, who looked at me and said, and this was even before I became a therapist, but they looked at me and said, not everybody is as strong as you. And that has stuck with me, you know, because I need to remember that, you know, that 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 is true. So, you know, again, assuming just making the assumption that because I say something like what I did means I'm incapable of appreciating what else is going on, where I go with that with somebody else's struggle is, okay. how do we build resiliency? How do we build your strengths? If you just sit and wallow in your weaknesses or your deficits or your trauma it is really hard to be hopeful and move forward. How do you build resilience in the therapy room? You ask people to be honest with themselves, you know, and, and we, we go through and we talk about why is this hard for you? You know, and they'll say, they'll, they'll have a response. And then, so I might say, and why is that hard? Well, because, and why is that hard? Well, because, so we're, you know, we're peeling away layers of the onion here, right? To try to, to figure out, is there a root cause? And, and I really don't like to get caught up in labels, you know, but sometimes labels are a double-edged sword. Sometimes we do need to be able to name something, but also not necessarily wear it like a badge, you know, and teach people that it's okay to be uncomfortable. There's nothing in this world, there are no guarantees that says life is always going to be comfortable. And so if you can learn to live with the discomfort and get stronger as a result of that, when you go to the gym, you live with discomfort all the time. If you are working towards a goal, no pain, no gain. And that's oversimplifying for sure. But but you do start to to think, wow, I am more capable than I thought I was. You know, the military teaches people that all the time. You think you're going to die in basic training. You think you're going to die when they send you to some of these, you know, shithole places they send you to. <laughs> and and you realize you live through it and you live to fight another day and you're more capable than you thought you were. That's how you build resilience. In what capacity were you in the military? Oh, I was in the army. And what was that like? You know, in the beginning, I had a huge authority issue. So it was a bit of a, an adjustment. <laughs> But I came to appreciate the structure, the mission, the things that I got to see and do, you know, just the life experience that I life experiences that I had that I never would have gotten had I stayed home. Um, I really enjoyed it. In fact, I enjoyed it so much that after 20 years of being out of the military, I reenlisted. <laughs> oh, what does that mean? Um, I went back into the military. So I was active duty initially, and then after a break in service. Um, my husband and I both re-enlisted. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to stay in as long as I wanted to, but he then went on to retire from the military. And, you know, we we firmly believe in the the greater good of the mission of protecting the country. You know, we are extremely patriotic. And our, our son also, you know, did a significant number of years in the military. We both of us come from military service on, you know, each side of our respective families. I mean, it's it's part of who we are. Were you like stationed overseas or did you experience combat ever? No, I was stationed overseas during what they called the Cold War, which is kind of a misnomer. You know, I mean, you're, you're of the age to know what that is. 
Um, if your listeners aren't, they can Google it. <laughs> but, they are, most, many of them, yes. Yeah, okay. So, you know, during the Cold War, but that's not to say that, that we didn't have some dangerous, you know, things. I mean, Americans were not popular in Europe um, during that time period. And so there were time periods where I, we checked our cars for bombs before we got into them. We checked our cars for bombs before we drove onto post. Um, I left the main PX one day and 20 minutes later, a car bomb went off in the car wash and I'd just been sitting at the ice cream place next door. You know, so you, you, it was a different kind of, of enemy because it was supposed to be peacetime, you know, but, but it wasn't. And so you still had to, you had to pay attention. You had to know your surroundings. What country was this in? Uh, Germany. Wow. What do people in the military sound like when they talk about their feelings? Who has feelings? <laughs> if if the if, uh, <laughs> if you were if the military would have wanted you to have feelings, they'd have issued you feelings. Okay, people are not going to like that, but you know what I mean. But like, does anybody? <laughs> I get I get what you're saying. I but like when people because you know it's a, it must be an incredibly bonding experience. People like of all different backgrounds and experiences are together in a foxhole or, or otherwise. And so right. like, I'm wondering, like, do people, how, how intimate do the discussions get? Like, do people really ever sort of, you know, come to be comfortable enough with one another that they're, that they're talking about their lives in vulnerable oh, yeah. ways? Yeah. I mean, you have your friends. I still have some, some friends today. I, I was, you know, the various places that I was stationed, I still keep in contact with a few people from my military service over 30 years ago. Um, and, and we didn't keep in contact this whole time. We kind of found each other, you know, again, around our, uh, like 20 year mark, you know, and kind of reconnected. Um, but the other interesting thing that happens is depending on how much you move and where you go and what kind of a unit you're in, you may not get close to anybody. I mean, you're, you're there for a mission, but you know that somebody's going to be here today, gone tomorrow for one reason or another, you know, whether it's just natural course of, of getting reassigned or whether it's because they're going to get killed, you know, so there's this, this dichotomy of who do I want to get close to and who do I have to avoid getting close to because I can't handle losing somebody else. Well, that sounds pretty damaging. Like that could do real harm to your soul. Well, especially when you consider that, you know, a lot of people that go into the military are still in that 18 to 25, you know, age bracket where your brains are, are forming, you know, I mean, I know people who have come back in their twenties and say, well, military taught me how to, you know, to take lives, but I don't think it taught me anything else. And they were so distorted in that, what you're talking about, this damaging view of themselves that they, they couldn't even see all the, the great things that the military brought to them during the course of that time, leadership, independence, teamwork, some incredible skills. When I got out of the military and, you know, you're standing outside the gate and you go from being a part of something big to standing outside the gate, looking in and not being a part of anything. It's devastating or it can be. And you work with a lot of veterans now, I think you said. Some. Yeah, um, I do. I do. Yeah. I'm getting ready to actually um, do uh, some equine therapy with a group of veterans, which is always fun. And are they, I don't know how old they are, but do they, they are coming to you. So they know that they do have to sort of present some kind of system of feeling. Are they able to sort of start talking about things a different way? Or do you say, do you sort of, are you able to say to them, 
you know, we don't even have to necessarily center your feelings here in order to make you feel better. You know, and that's the beauty of equine therapy, which is a whole nother, not no pun intended, but a whole nother animal, right? Um, the, we don't have to sit down and, and like poke a finger in their chest and say, tell me how you feel, right? Um, that's not what this is about. And that doesn't really work with veterans anyway, because they'll just clam up, you know, um, it doesn't work with the prison population either. There's a lot of similarities, which would be a topic for another day between, you know, people who've been in prison and people who've been in the military. <laughs> um, and so we kind of just let things naturally come out. And when you're doing equine therapy, the horses are the ones that show them important things if they're in a place to see it, the, the, the client. If the client's not in a place to see it, we can help facilitate that or, you know, maybe they don't see it for two or three years, right? I mean, they get to see it when they're ready, but the, the message is there. It's just when are they ready to receive it? And equine therapy, that doesn't necessarily have to do with even riding the horses, right? It's caring for them and being around them. Well, and it's not not so much, I mean, caring in the moment, right? But um, the model of equine therapy that I'm trained in is called EGALA, Equine Assisted Growth and Learning. And so it is all a ground experiential um, type of therapy, groundwork. So there isn't any riding. Um, we use the horses as a 1,200-pound mirror. <laughs> um, horses, you know, will mirror behaviors and they'll mirror um, feelings. And then the individual decides what they, you know, how they're experiencing that in the moment. And they get to make something of it. And, and it's up to them, you know, what they get to make of it. Um, sometimes horses will do some really interesting things and then the people can say, oh, wow, that, that's what's happening in my relationships. So it's a far more powerful and pervasive way to demonstrate, you know, positive or negative than just sitting down and, you know, like talk therapy ad nauseum. Right. Wow. Maybe some of these city dwellers need to have equine therapy. Well, I think, yeah, even city dwellers can get outside and, you know, look at a tree once in a while and put their feet in the dirt. That's going to be helpful. Yeah. I want to go back for a second to this idea of sort of wearing your diagnoses like a badge. We see that more and more now. People love to have categories that apply to them. Right. Um, I, I notice a lot of the same people are who I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but they're, <laughs> like people are really into <laughs> astrology these days. Have you noticed that? Uh, I I don't know. I if it's I haven't noticed it being more or less. You know, I don't know. I think. Well, I was talking to um, a young person, like somebody, uh, like a kid in high school, and he was saying that some of these girls they don't want to date. They'll say like, well, I can't go out with you because like I'm an Aquarius and you're a Taurus and that doesn't go. Now, maybe that's just a way of saying I I'm just not that into you. But I, I think that there is you know, there's something very appealing about seeing yourself as part of a category or, or like it all makes sense because I'm this. It all makes sense because I'm a Gemini sort of thing. So what do you do when people come into you and do they, they're saying like, I'm bipolar, I'm, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, these are the boxes that I check, you know, and we can, I mean, I have this ginormous manual, the diagnostic, you know, manual that, that therapists, psychologists, therapists, counselors, social workers use, right. That has all these diagnoses and, and they can be helpful, you know, in terms of informing a path for treatment, but because certain interventions are going to work better for a person with this label than that label, right? So, I mean, it gives you a framework, but I think if you just rely on that, you miss looking at the total person and helping them understand that even if you have this, 
this diagnosis doesn't mean you can't go on and do great things. I mean, look at now technology has gotten to the place to where service members who have lost a, a leg in combat can be fit with a prosthetic and they're back on active duty. I mean, it, gone are the days of, um, you know, Forrest Gump when Lieutenant Dan is sitting in his wheelchair falling, feeling sorry for himself because he has no legs. I mean, that nearly destroyed him, right? And I know that's a movie, but there's there's far more truth to that than some people might realize that, you know, I'm I'm a broken man. My identity was as a soldier and now I have no identity. We have to be able to help people find a new identity um, for nobody that for anybody who has not read A Man's Search for Meaning. You need to do it. Mm hmm. Good point. So, again, I know that you don't have the kinds of clients generally that read the New York Times and might be listening to this podcast. But I thought I would like give you a couple different scenarios that the people I think of as going to therapy or, you know, maybe I, I think back on, you know, my my younger years, like, and I wonder how you would approach them as a as a quote unquote conservative therapist. So <laughs> let's say okay. um I'll say a woman in her in her late 20s, getting into her 30s, comes in and says, like, I really want a relationship. I want to find somebody. I want to find a, somebody to marry, settle down with, but I just can't meet anybody. There's no men or I go out with someone a few times and he breaks up with me, doesn't want to see me. I can't seem to get a relationship going. Uh, and I'm starting to be really mad at men and I'm blaming the patriarchy uh, or my mother or any number of factors. Well, if you're blaming everyone else, then I think that's really unfair. I mean, you need to look in the mirror and say, what do I, what should I do differently? What can I do differently? You know, I, I'm not necessarily with those kind of people. I'm not as prescriptive, prescriptive. Like, I don't like to say, well, you need to do this and you need to do that because whatever I feel is going to be helpful may not at all resonate with the client. Right. So we sit down and we explore together. Um, how can you do something different to get something different? You know, there is a saying that if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you always got. Um, and so how do we explore that together to figure out what little changes that you can make? You know, and so we're really talking about doing some cognitive restructuring, too, around um, how can you think differently about this or about that? You know, why are you drawn to this? Um, why are you drawn to that? Um, let's explore that. So, I mean, there's, it's, you spend a lot of time unpacking some of these deeper lying issues that may be actually a barrier to what you envision having. And how much exploration would you do about like people's childhoods, the way they were raised? Because I can imagine a lot of therapists, you could spend years talking about your mother alone. I, I think there's a point where the therapist should be able to identify and say, okay, we're beating a dead horse here. You know, we, we've looked at this, we've looked at this, we've looked at this. Um, and really asking the client, you know, do you agree that maybe we've exhausted this and it's time to move on? You know, I mean, we, we want to gauge their level of motivation to be able to move forward on something and move past it. If they're still stuck in that, I mean, it, it's, it's a tough challenge to get people to get unstuck sometimes. And, and you've got to get creative. You know, one of my legal system clients was really stuck in, in her treatment. And I was able to find a way to take her out to, to do some sessions of equine therapy. And it lit up her mind in a way that wasn't happening in the office. And I know not everybody has that opportunity. And, and I don't always have that opportunity. But that was a flaming example of how to get somebody unstuck in a creative way. Hmm. 
Do you, can you give like a little example? It's very intriguing. Uh, um, it had to do with relationships and guilt and, and her coming to a place of acceptance that this was not all on her shoulders, that, you know, this was, that she was a piece of this dysfunctional pie, but she didn't have to carry the full load. So just accepting what happened and it was sucky, but how can she get through it? Because, you know, if you just stay under that heavy suck blanket, I mean, there's not a lot of hope there. So just helping her find some hope in, in looking towards the future and, and helping, you know, reinforce that there actually is a future. So is there something, I don't mean to dwell on this, but this is really interesting. Like, is there something that the horse would do like to feel, because, okay, I feel guilty about everything. So say I went to equine (laughs) therapy, how do I, what does the horse have to do to take it off my shoulders? Well, the horse does what the horse does. And then you interpret that through your lens of your life and you either find meaning in it or you don't, you know? And so whether you find meaning in it in the session or whether you think about it, you know, three months later and find some meaning in it. You know, I mean, as the as the mental health person, and then I haven't worked with an equine specialist, so we have a two person team, right? So our job is to maybe explore some things and you know create some food for thought, you know, around the session. But ultimately, it's it's your opportunity to take something away from that. And honestly, if you're not ready to take something away from that, that's valuable too because that tells us where you are mentally. You know, that maybe. You know, we don't know when this might might be helpful. Maybe it will never be helpful. I mean, not all therapy is helpful. People think that if I go to a therapist, man, I'm going to be great. Not necessarily. And sometimes <laughs> yeah. it gets worse before it gets better. <laughs> quickly, quickly disillusioned. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think about medication? Because a lot of people go to therapists and the, they say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, whatever, and they get put on medication. You're not a psychopharmacologist, obviously. Uh, right. You don't have much to do with that. But what do you think of the fact that that's such a quick fix so often? I think we're in a microwave society, whether it's medication, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, everything is instant, 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 which further distances us from dealing with things on a really, you know, deep level, right? And so, I mean, I'm cautious about even considering medication or making a referral for medication. But there are times where it's absolutely necessary and appropriate. You know, there are also also times where I feel like maybe we use medication temporarily and then that enables you to move past um, something so that you can then be in a place to develop better skills. I mean, even research supports that therapy alone or medication alone are not as effective as the two together. Um, and so you just have to look at each individual person and confer with, you know, their prescribing provider and stay in communication around, is this working? What's not working? What is working? You know, how, what else do we need to do to support this person while you're doing some skill development around their own discomfort? Right. And I know you don't deal with kids, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts just about the sheer number of kids who are medicated from a very, very early age. I mean, you do deal with the people within the various systems. And I know right. from being involved in the uh, in the foster care system, for instance, child welfare system, I the vast majority of kids get medicated uh, very quickly if they're in a group home, for instance. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's damaging. It's, an, it's potentially unreasonable unless you're really using it, you know, with the idea that this is a stepping stone. But I mean, I've seen, I, I work with a a man now who's developmentally delayed but high functioning 
and the medications and things that he was subjected to during the course of his like 17 different foster homes. Um, how can you have any kind of like person-centered treatment plan when that's going on? And he was behavioral. People had a hard time managing him. And I know that was part of probably the logic around, well, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, you know, because we are limited for resources for people with certain conditions. There's no doubt about that, you know, as a, as a country, you know, but I, I think medication needs to be used judiciously. And I think if we can learn how to better help children develop their own sense of self and resiliency and pay attention to what they're being exposed to, maybe there's a chance they don't ever need medication, but we're, we're, we're the microwave people. You know, we want that quick fix because that's the only way we know how to manage it. Do you worry about entire generations growing up with serious mental health problems? I mean, is that overstated mental health crisis in America? I, I think we're not doing our next generation a lot of favors. And, you know, whether we look at the amount of garbage that gets dumped into our water systems and to our soil systems, you know, I mean, all the hormone disruptors that are in plastics. I mean, how can we not recognize that that is going to have an impact on humans, you know? And I mean, we've known this for a long time, but we continue to to have these things in the name of what convenience or progress or, you know, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think progress is all that beneficial in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have a lot more information about how to deal with significant metal ail uh, medical ailments, you know, and things like that. So, but even that's problematic. I mean, are we really designed to extend everybody's life until they're a hundred? How do we support that as a world? <laughs> right. See, and this is again, why these things should not be politicized because what you just said, that doesn't sound like it's not liberal or conservative. It's just very human and it's very logical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, th these are the things that we have to figure out how to do it better. You know, I mean, and to totally ignore some of these historical things that have taken place because they are too political to talk about is so narrow minded and short sighted, in my opinion. Like, what are the others? What are other issues that you wish people would talk about in a better way, but they don't because they might be politicized? Um, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, even, I honestly, you know, issues related to psychology. I mean, just things, you know, parenting issues or or you know, gender issues. We don't have to go down that road, but yeah. like, there's just so much that should not have anything to do with, with politics, but has been weaponized by one side or the other, or both usually. Well, and I think there's, I've been reading a lot lately about um, school curriculums, you know, and, and what's going on in schools and parents being cut out at least this is what I've been reading. And, you know, and I, there's a fair amount of information that makes it seem like this is probably happening in some places. Parents are being cut out of raising their children as if they don't know how to do it, but the education system and the educators know how to do it better. I mean, keeping secrets from parents, you know, I mean, when you see enough of this stuff over and over and over in the news, you have to feel like there's a kernel of truth somewhere, you know? Oh, yeah. No, it is true. We've had people on here talking about that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so why are, I feel like everything has a political flavor to it, in, which is ridiculous, but it just seems like the overarching theme is always, well, that's a liberal thought. That's a conservative thought. What about just a child-centered thought, you know? around raising, you know, healthy people for the next generation. Um, but we, we seem to have to pick a side. And so we pick the red or the blue side. 
Yeah, well, these become proxy wars for other things. Right, right. People get caught in the middle and really suffer. Did you, so can you think of like, um, you know, in terms of the response, as we sort of wrap this up, like what was, do you remember anything that was particularly poignant to you or, or surprising or, you know, made all the responses you got? I had a middle-aged male who identified as liberal, gay, from a very liberal state, said that, you know what, if my conservative friends needed a therapist, I would recommend you. Um, that I just thought, wow, what an endorsement, you know, I mean, that, (laughs) um, he himself wouldn't go to you. Is that what he's saying? So, yeah, I mean, he didn't say he would, or he wouldn't, he, he, you know, he didn't address that, you know, but I just thought that was interesting that he was able to appreciate something about what I said enough to, you know, refer his friends, because I feel like if I, if he perceived me as too completely extreme, then he wouldn't even want his friends to talk to me. Right. I mean, that's how, that was my interpretation of that. But, and, and just, I guess the other piece of this was people from across the United States that reached out to me and every, and some places in between, and it wasn't overwhelming, you know, but there was an interesting level of response from not just a big area or a little area, you know, it was just across the board that really kind of gave me some hope around the fact that we do have people in this country was common sense, but we just don't, I think we lose sight of that because all we see or a lot of what we see are the extremes. Did you hear from other therapists? Um, I did hear from a retired therapist and I heard from a retired psych nurse or at least a no longer practicing psych nurse. I don't know if that person was retired or not that I know of other people, you know, if, if they had some involvement in mental health, they didn't identify that. Okay. Well, this is an amazing conversation that we could go on and on. I guess my last question for you, it has to do with the first thing I noticed when our interview came out, and that was that you were sitting in front of a framed American flag when the, in, the, in the photograph. They, I know they, the Times sent a photographer out and took a lot of different pictures of you on your property. You live out in the country. How did you feel about the fact that that was the one that they chose? Um, I felt like it was an appropriate backdrop. I mean, I think they really wanted something that would say conservative, you know, visually as well as, you know, whatever they took away from the actual discussion piece. And given like my military history and background, you know, in my family, we have to, as a nation, start to figure out how to protect our country. And, you know, if people can get back to the roots of remembering, you know, that very early representation of what that meant, you know, maybe that's going to help us get there. Okay. Because my first feeling was, oh no, people are going to pile on. This is going to be a visual signal that consciously or not triggers people, so to speak. And they're going to make a whole bunch of assumptions about D that are not true or fair. You didn't have any sense of that? in the comments or anywhere else? I No, I really didn't. I mean, I feel like if, if we're all in this country and, and we don't remember our origins, you know, then that places us in a dangerous place. Um, yeah. I guess when you say triggered by an American flag, I know. that doesn't even compute to me. Okay. Yeah, because I think it's just as a sort of visual symbol, people are going to 
register, oh, this is a person who is politically to the to the right. People are going to think that. And the other thing I thought was, okay, well, there was if if they had run a picture of you with your dog, for instance, mm-hmm. it, there would I wonder like there's nothing that she said in this conversation that was so so conservative or so clearly coming from someone on the political right. That so if we had had the conversation that we had and they'd run a picture of you with your dog looking, you know, with no there was no political kind of flavor to the photo at all, it it would not have been able to be framed as a conversation with a conservative therapist. Like I, I sort of thought like, right. okay, well, the flag is the thing that is letting people know that this person is conservative because the, <laughs> the, the <Yeah>. conversation <laughs> itself wasn't actually doing that. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I think that again, like if who, whatever side you're on, we all have a stake in this country, you know, and, and this country came from some pretty tough origins. And, and if, if you're going to let an image of a flag cloud your judgment about how can we come together and move forward for the sake of the country, then I feel like maybe you've lost sight of where we've come from. All right. Any final thoughts? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm just going to hold my breath, um, you know, and see see what happens as a result of this discussion. As a result of this, well, I don't have quite the audience that the New York <laughs> Times does, so I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, get too get too panicked. Uh, just to be clear, you cannot practice outside of Colorado, right? Um, there is a there's something in the works, and right now for an interstate compact um, with as as I understand it, last time I saw any uh, correspondence with, I believe, ten states. Um, who have all agreed that, you know, if you're licensed in one of these 10 states, then you can do therapy in one of these 10 states. But um, it hasn't been completely finalized yet because not all of the states has signed the compact. This has actually been in the works for a long time because they recognize that people are mobile. But, you know, different states have different requirements in order to become a therapist. So um, there's an advocacy group out there who's been working on this to try to say, look, at least, you know, can we get a few states to come together so that we could practice in other states? Um, I think the anticipated date for that to be in place is like sometime in 2024. Um, so, yes, currently I cannot. But, you know, the counseling profession as a whole is looking to try to expand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I several people did say they would like to go to you for therapy, but they don't live in Colorado. so. Maybe, maybe twenty. Maybe someday. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, Dee, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the previous conversation. Thank you for um, not uh, dismissing me or the New York Times as a scam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and Megan, I wanted to say too that you know, I mean, I've I've been developing my bias of the media, like I'm sure a lot of us have. You know, depending on who's presenting what. And there's a really uh, enlightening article in the Epic Times from last week that talks about the war on journalism. And as a result of various media people that I have dealt with, not just you, not just the Times, but there was somebody from CNN as a result of all of these conversations, everybody has been extremely respectful, extremely interested in just, you know, what I would consider good old fashioned journalism. And that really helped me kind of check my own forming bias, you know, around the information that's promoted. And so I really, really, really appreciate what you're doing. All right, Dee. Well, Thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday season and um, good luck with everything. Maybe we'll talk again sometime. Thanks for having me, Megan.
That was my interview with Dee Bridge. Dee is a licensed professional counselor practicing in Grand Junction, Colorado. You can read my initial conversation with her in the October 4th edition of the New York Times. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. You can now support the podcast by going to its Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. Also, little announcement here. The Unspeakeasy, my new community for free-thinking women, has some exciting new things coming up, including a weekend-long retreat in Los Angeles next February 18th, 19th. We're going to have a number of retreats in 2023. This is the first one. This is the one we're announcing at the moment. Most of the retreats are like three nights, four days or so. This one's a little shorter. It's over the weekend but it's going to be really special. Go to theunspeakeasy.com to find out more about it, to request information. It's going to be on the west side of Los Angeles, February 18th and 19th. That's all for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.